Um, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13. We will eventually be looking at some verses there. In the meantime, I have a couple of those uh, thought questions for you. They're not going to be up on the PowerPoint, so um, you'll just have to sort of hear them and maybe contemplate them a little bit. Uh, I like to get us thinking about the topic, and these are kind of a little bit tangential, but they're, they're definitely close to the topic. Uh, the first question is this. Why does it seem like some people that you know are just resistant to the things of God? For some people, you know, why, why is it that, that spiritual truth just seems to bounce off of some people and, and they show no openness whatsoever, whereas other people seem to just have great openness toward God and they just soak in whatever, whatever spiritual truth heads their way? What's, what's the difference? What makes the difference? Have you ever thought about that? The second question is more personal because it's less theoretical and it's not about people, but it's about you. Why, in your own life, do you sometimes feel like you're hearing from God and you are interacting with God and you are close to God and there's a lot of give and take with God, and then at other times in your life you feel like your heart is completely cold and your prayers are kind of bouncing off the ceiling and and God's words kind of bouncing off your heart without making any impact or without even capturing your interest. And don't tell me that never happens to you because I know that it does. Why, why are there seasons like that in our lives and, and what makes the difference? Um, there's some mystery there, but, but I, I think there's also some definite progress we can make in understanding those questions. And I think the answers to them are, are somewhat related and, and we can make some of that progress by paying attention to the verses that I want to look at with you today in Matthew 13. So if you're there, we're going to start right at verse 1 this time. And kind of an extended passage, but it's a, it's a parable that Jesus explains, and it'll go pretty fast. 1 through 23 of Matthew 13. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the, the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Then hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. 
As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Well, throughout the whole chapter, Jesus is talking about, as we said last week, the kingdom of God. God's rule over God's people in God's place. And as we mentioned last week, Jesus is telling here a series of parables about the kingdom. And, and most of these parables, and this is the whole chapter is full of parables, and most of them are about the same thing. They are about the expansion or the growth or the progress of God's kingdom, how it grows, how it moves forward. And this is a very foundational one. This parable we just read, usually called the parable of the sower, is really the key for understanding all of the parables in this chapter because it talks about how people receive truth from God, and they'll need to do that in order to understand the parables. And in particular, in verse 19, how people receive something that Jesus calls there the word of the kingdom. The word of the kingdom. I really just want to be very straightforward with you today and ask four questions, try to answer them. First, what is this word of the kingdom? Second, who are the recipients of this word of the kingdom? Whatever it is, who was who it for? Who was the audience that, that it's meant for? And then third, what happens when people hear the word? What is the dynamic that takes place when people hear this word of the kingdom? And then last, uh, is there anything we can do about it? Is there anything for us to do about it? And, and that's not a trivial question. And, and I want us to leave today with a better idea of how to listen to the voice of the king through his word as his word hits our hearts. I think that's an important thing to learn, and we need to go away today with a better idea of how to do it. So we're going to try to answer those four questions. First of all, what is the word of the kingdom? Jesus says that when the word of the kingdom is preached, so what does that mean? What is the content of it? This phrase is just really one of many to describe uh, really the same thing that, that Jesus used other words for at other times. Um, he was bringing this message to the people, and it was called the word of the kingdom. And sometimes it's called something else. In the Gospel of Mark, it's often just called the word. Sometimes it's called the word of God. Other places in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's called not the word of the kingdom, but the gospel of the kingdom. It's the same thing, basically. Well, what is this word that people are supposed to believe and presumably act upon? What is its content? Well, before I tell you what it is, let me tell you for sure what it's not, at least not at this point. It's not Jesus died for your sins and you need to receive him into your heart. It's not that. How do we know that? Well, we know that because who's, who's sharing it here? Jesus, and he's still alive. So he can't say that he's died for their sins. And so that's not really what the word of the kingdom is here. Jesus hasn't done that yet, nor is there any indication that Jesus was telling these people, look, keep an eye out for it because I'm about to die for your sins. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry a cross up a hill over at Calvary real soon, and you need to pay attention because that's going to happen, and I'm dying for you. Although he very soon would do just that, he gives them no indication here that that's what's happening. The message of Jesus, we've already been given several times in the gospel, and we're, we're told what it is, is this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, obviously, Jesus said more than just these nine words because of all he did was go around repeating that phrase, people would have thought he was crazy. 
So he said other things, but all the other messages that he preached and the stories that he told and the conversations that he had were expounding upon this statement that was the theme of his ministry and his preaching, this message and the invitation that went with it. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've already seen that many times over the last few weeks. Well, let's look at it a little more carefully. What does repent mean? It's not a word that we use a whole lot in conversation today. In fact, it's a word we kind of run from because it's not a happy word. Well, repent literally means to change your mind, to change your mind. It means to reorient your thinking in a different direction. And it means to turn away, to turn away from that thing that you are currently depending on or being ruled by or, or being fixated on or living for, to let go of that thing, whatever it is, a person, a relationship, an idea, your possessions, your reputation, a false god, whatever it is, to turn away from that and let go of it. Well, why in the world would anybody do that if that thing was that important to them? What would cause them to to repent, to turn away from such a foundational aspect of their lives? Well, because of the rest of the message. Because there's a better alternative. There's a better thing to aim for. There's a better thing to hope for, to trust in, to live for. There's a better thing to, to orient your life and thinking around, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, as we've mentioned several times, is in its final form a perfect kingdom. It's God's kingdom. It's a realm where there is no evil. There is no injustice. There is no heartbreak. There is no pain. There is no sin. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation. In its final form, the kingdom of heaven is a perfect place. It's a perfect condition. It's a perfect situation, a perfect future. And so this is a pretty good invitation. Would you maybe agree that that's worth repenting for? But of course, the kingdom, the whole word kingdom, implies something, right? It implies that there's a king. And if there's a king, then that king has the authority to rule in the life of the people of the kingdom. Now, he's a perfectly wise, perfectly just, perfectly loving and merciful king, but Jesus does make that claim. And so the invitation to to enter into the kingdom of God is also an invitation to embrace the rule of the king by definition. Now, don't get confused. Don't be deceived. I'm not saying we earn our way there. We absolutely do not. It's not an invitation to qualify for the kingdom of heaven by a series of noble deeds or some sort of uh, loving activities or some cycle of religious works. No, the invitation is simply to embrace the one who gives you the promise of the new life and to embrace him as your king because that's what he is. And the content of this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, has actually been filled in a lot more since then as more and more detail has been added, but in essence, it's always been the same. Let me explain that. Jesus, in his ministry, when he's going around talking to people, is only able to say at this point, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But a little bit later on, a couple years later, in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has gone to the cross and died and risen from the dead, and Peter is preaching the first ever Christian sermon at the birthday of the church, Pentecost, and, and he's able to say a little bit more. It's the same message, but he has more detail. Peter is able to say, repent. That's still there. But then he says, the king has come, and you killed him. But... God has raised him from the dead, and now he offers eternal life in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to all who will turn to him in faith. So there's more there, right? There's more detail there, but it's the same message. Later on, the Apostle Paul, 
in places like Romans and, and 2 Corinthians is able to get even more detailed about what this message is. And Paul is able to say, repent. Repent, for the crucified king actually died in your place. And in exchange for taking your sin upon himself, he offers you a righteousness that is not your own. And so the gospel that we respond to today has more detail because more has happened. It's got more of the content filled in. But listen, it's still the same basic message, and it says this, repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ. It's the same message. And the repent part has never gone away because the experience of what we like to call getting saved the experience of becoming a Christian, and if you've been here for several years, you've heard me say this many times, that experience has always been a U-turn. It's never been a mile marker. It's not some rite of passage that you go by along the way of life, something you accomplish so that you take care of eternity and then move on with the rest of your life going in the same old direction, only now you have your fire insurance. No, it's always been different than that. It's, it still is today a change in direction. It's a change in orientation, a change in the way that you're facing. Your position, when you come to Christ, your position might not change a whole lot right away. It will eventually. And you may not always move in the right directions. You may have seasons in your life where you fall backwards and you fall farther from Christ. But what does change, and it changes for all time, is that the compass in your heart now points in a different direction. And it always will, because you now have a new Lord. You have a new King. You have a new Savior. And you have something to live for. And He's the same person who died to deliver you from your sin. That's the invitation that Jesus is offering these people in Matthew 13 to turn and to follow him, as he says elsewhere, to take his yoke upon them, to learn of him, to make him their Lord and Savior. And while we're at this point, let me just remind those of you who are here and maybe have never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life, God is holding out that invitation to you even today and even right now. He's holding it out. He loves you, and he wants you to come to him, and he's inviting you, and I'm inviting you on his behalf to respond to this invitation of Jesus, to receive that, sal that salvation, to embrace Jesus as your Savior and as your King. But now we come to our second question. Who is this word for? To whom is this invitation addressed well it's certainly addressed to those who have never put their trust in jesus we just talked about that but i would contend that it's also addressed to christians it's also addressed to those who are already part of god's kingdom family jesus is speaking here it says to a large crowd there's all sorts of people there and no doubt they come from all sorts of different spiritual backgrounds and experience they're in different places with god and in fact jesus's disciples are also in attendance we find that out pretty quick here and it's clear that jesus has way more to share with them in fact, there's many more parables in this very chapter which Jesus is going to expect his disciples to understand and to internalize and to apply to their lives. In fact, in Mark's version of this passage, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, look, if you don't understand the parable of the sower, you're going to have a lot of trouble understanding any of the other parables that I'm about to tell you. So this word, this word of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, it's still applicable to those who are following Jesus already, meaning you and me, most of us, and so is the invitation to repent. So is the invitation to repent. You say, look, I've already repented. I've turned around. Yeah, that compass in my heart is already pointing at Jesus. Why do I have to repent again? 
But you don't need to repent and come to know Jesus for the first time again, but there are many times in a Christian's life when we need to repent. Life is really all about repentance from time to time. Let me just give you an example, and he's an example that we use a lot because he's the disciple that the, the Bible talks the most about, and it's the Apostle Peter. I mean, Peter's already a follower of Jesus here, but that does not mean that Peter's never going to have to repent again or change direction. In fact, when Jesus, in a few chapters in, in, John, in uh, Matthew 16, Jesus is going to start to share some details about this, this word of the kingdom. In fact, he's going to share the detail that the king has to suffer and die. And Peter's going to look at Jesus and say, whoa, stop, the train, no. He's going to rebel against Jesus. He's going to say, we're not even going to go there because that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter. And in fact, Jesus calls Peter Satan of all things. And it's because Peter's mind has gotten so far off the things of God, it's fallen so far back into his old way of thinking that he needs to change his mind again. He needs to turn. He needs to repent. He's still a believer, but he needs to repent of what he just said and how he feels and what, he does and what, he's, and what he's thinking. And you all know that Peter had another issue a little while later. He denied three times the night before Jesus died that he even knew his Lord. And Jesus said to him before that even happened, he said, Peter, i got to tell you something. You're going to fail me in this way three times. Peter had trouble believing it at the time. But Jesus then said to him, but when you've turned back, when you've repented, strengthen your brothers. And that wasn't even the last time Peter needed to repent. As a matter of fact, later on, even after Peter got the Holy Spirit in his life, after he preached all these sermons, Paul had to, 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 to rebuke Peter in Antioch one time because Peter was being a hypocrite. Even after, after he was already the Apostle Peter, and he had to repent again. And you know what? If, if you read, this is so cool, when you read the last chapter of the book of John, you will see the last words that Jesus ever spoke directly and specifically to the Apostle Peter that we have recorded at least. You know what those words are? Follow me. Almost the same words that you heard at first. Jesus says to Peter one more time, Peter, follow me. I know it's been three years of this, but follow me. You see, this parable applies not just to unbelievers being exposed to the gospel, but to believers. It ha this, is what, this describes what happens every time the word of God collides with a human heart. That's what this parable is about. And each time, for us, we hear the voice of Jesus saying at that time, follow me. If you've ever been on a vacation, maybe to a strange city you hadn't been to before, or maybe even to a foreign country, or maybe even if you just went to a museum or something like that, how many here have ever been on a guided tour, you know, a tour guide taking you through a city or something? So most of you are familiar with that experience. And so you've got this tour, and you pay him something usually, and, and, the, and the guide starts out the tour. He brings everybody together, and he gives you some basic instructions about what you're going to do. And, and then he says what? He grabs his little um, his, his thing that he's holding up over his head, so you follow him, and he says, follow me. But that's not the last time that he says it, really, is it? He's got some other guidance for you later on in the day. It's not the final command because follow me is going to be fleshed out in a lot of specific situations. Sometimes it's going to be follow me and get in line with these people over here. Sometimes it's going to be follow me because here's the safest place for us to cross the street. Sometimes it's follow me because you don't want to miss the coolest thing in the tour which we're about to pass. Sometimes it's follow me into this restaurant because it's time for lunch. Sometimes it's just follow me and don't get hit by that bus. Remember you're in London and the traffic's on the other side of the road. Not that that ever happens. But just like that tour guide, listen, Jesus never stops saying, follow me. He never stops saying it. He's always calling us to further obedience, even after we've committed to go on this tour with him, and the tour is our whole life. Sometimes it's, follow me out of danger because you've taken a wrong turn. 
Sometimes it's follow me into your next adventure of obedience. We're going to try something new. Sometimes it's, it's really specific. It's follow me and love that person right now, and here's what I want you to do. Follow me and speak my words to that person over there right now. Follow me into this new way of serving God. And every time we hear the voice of the Savior once again saying, follow me, the dynamic of this parable gets repeated over and over and over again in our hearts. Which brings us to the third question. When that happens, what's going on? What happens when people hear this word of the kingdom? What is the dynamic? What is the process? Jesus gives us four different possibilities here, and this is what most of the parable is about. And I want you to keep in mind that these possibilities that we're going to look at here are valid not just for unbelievers hearing the gospel, but again, they're valid every time you or I encounter the word of God and it is directed at our our hearts. This can happen. And also, let me give you another caution here, because as we talk about these things, you are reflexively, you're going to find out that you can probably name a whole bunch of people that fit into each of the categories. These are people in your life, people that you know, that fit into the different categories we're about to talk about, and that's fine, because we need to think about how to minister to those people wherever they're at, but think about yourself too. I need to do that as well. So don't just go right to other people, but think about how this might apply to your own heart. First possibility is represented by the seed that falls on the road. And when seed falls on the road, of course, we know it basically has no chance of of, uh, taking root. And so the birds, who Jesus says symbolize the evil one, come and snatch away the word before it has any chance to even hit home. And we all know people who seem to fit this description, people who seem to have no interest at all in spiritual things. Their heart is just that, that road. Maybe they're just totally engrossed in themselves or whatever they're living for. Maybe they don't have time to consider a word from God. Maybe they're just flat out hostile to the message of Jesus. Maybe there's an open animosity toward God and they consciously resist or change the subject when the subject gets brought up. Or maybe they're just apathetic. You know, any talk of following Jesus or or kingdom of God or repenting, heaven forbid, or anything like that, that just seems irrelevant or old-fashioned or, you know, silly. By the way, this, this part of the parable might describe a believer too. Someone who's in a state of rebellion maybe and has run away from God and right now the input circuits just are not on. It may even describe you or me at a time when maybe we're immersed in some sin that we don't want to deal with or maybe we're in a state of grief or shock and we just shut down for a while. Either way, look, it's not a good place to be. It's not a good place to stay, certainly, because Satan, as Jesus indicates here by the presence of these birds, Satan is close by at times like this, and he is going to do everything he can to make sure that that seed doesn't roll off the road and find itself on any kind of useful soil. And he does not, the last thing he wants is you turning your face back toward Jesus. People in this situation need a lot of prayer, because in order for them to hear the word, God needs to help them pull their fingers out of their ears. But, but here's the good news. God does that. God does that, so keep on praying. In Acts chapter 7, there's a scene where Stephen, um, he, he, he's a, a one of the, um, the deacons in the early church, and he's, he's preaching the word of the kingdom to this group of people that are about to kill him for doing it. And as they go to kill him and as they run toward him, it says they literally put their hands over their ears and yell so they can't hear what he's saying. But you know what? One guy there was the Apostle Paul. And it seems that one chapter later or two chapters later, he got his ears open pretty distinctly. God answers that prayer. 
Now I want to take the next two together, the rocky ground and the thorns, if that's okay, because they sort of, they're sort of two sides of the same coin. In both cases, the person encounters the word and listens to it and decides to do something about it, it seems. There's some element of repentance. There's maybe a resolution to change, maybe to follow Jesus for the first time, maybe to turn over some area of life to him, maybe a commitment to take some hard step of obedience. But then as the person goes to take this step, something happens. Either opposition arises or uh, or there's a possibility of something painful happening, maybe ridicule or persecution or a loss of friendships or some other hardship will come in if you obey God or if you trust Him. Now on the other side of the coin, what happens is the Word comes in and, and it starts to maybe grow a little, but it gets crowded out by other things. Things that will not give way to make room for the kingdom to advance in this person's life. These are the thorns. They might not be fear of something bad happening like the other condition, but this is the fear of losing something good or something that seems to be good, like material wealth, Jesus mentions, or prestige or time, or maybe just the privilege of calling your own shots. You don't want to lose these things. They prove too costly to give up, and so this step of obedience, this answering God's call to trust in Jesus, it gets lost in the shuffle. So either way, whether it's, it's kind of the fearful heart of hitting trouble and then not being able to move forward, or whether it's the, the, the distracted heart of, of, of somebody not being able to let go of things, either way what happens is the gospel is just not compelling enough to this person at this point to inspire them to either fight through it or to let go of what they need to let go of, and, and nothing ever comes of it. That's the rocky ground and the thorns. And then, of course, we have those who hear the word and, and then, as Jesus says, understand it. They understand it. But, you know, this understanding in context, it has to be more than just intellectual grasping of the facts. We're talking here about spiritual understanding. We're talking about understanding and faith at a, at a heart level, spiritual receptivity, not just mental understanding. And... and and, you know, a lot of really smart people fail to understand Jesus. And the people that do have this ability to understand at a heart level, Jesus says they truly believe, they truly internalize this word of the kingdom, they end up bearing fruit in their lives. Well, what's fruit? That's a figure of speech, right? So what's fruit? Well, it's the fruit of Christian character. It's love, joy, peace, patience, etc. It's the fruit of obedience, doing what Jesus says to do, and ultimately it's the fruit of multiplication, impacting the lives of other people with their actions and their words because that fruit produces more seeds, and the seeds get sown, and the word can spread to more and more people, and the kingdom of God grows, and that's what Jesus wants for us. That's what God the Father wants for us. In John 15, it says, this is my Father's will for you, that you bear much fruit. But that leads us to, last, to ask the last question as we see this dynamic happening of seed getting sown onto ground. Is there anything that we, because we're the ground, right? So is there anything that we can do about it? Is there anything for us to do? We see these four different responses. People encounter the Word of God, and it looks like the best thing for us to be is good ground. Wouldn't you agree? We're supposed to be good ground, so okay. But the way the passage reads, it can be kind of disturbing because it doesn't look like we have a lot of control over this. Are we just destined to be a certain kind of ground? Or is there something we can do about it? what kind of ground we are. Now, I think if, you, if you're honest and you look at your life, you probably can tell there are some times when you're rocky ground or some times when you feel like you're thorny ground, and maybe you even feel the times when you're good ground. But, but can we do anything about that? Can, what, can we make ourselves good ground? Or can, we, can we at least take some meaningful step in that direction? Or is it just a matter of, you know what, if you're not good ground, you're just out of luck. Too bad. 
at any given time. What if we're not blessed like the disciples with ears to hear and eyes to see? Are we just out of luck? Are some of you maybe here either now or at some time in your life maybe worried about this? Worried that maybe you'll never hear the voice of God again? Or even worried and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus but you've been thinking about this and you've thought about the sin that God's reminded you of and you know that you need to be saved but you have this fear that you might not be elected, whatever that means, and you might not be good ground and then you might not be able to ever respond to the gospel and you might not ever be able to be saved? I've heard people say things like that. Let me just make a comment here, or a couple. The first thing is this. If you're truly concerned about that possibility, if you really are afraid that you will never be able to come to Jesus as your Savior, and that's, that's more than just an intellectual exercise for you, but you're really worried about it, can I tell you something? That's a pretty good indication to me that you've got some level to the Spirit of God speaking to your heart. Whatever else is happening, that seed is not falling on the road. And so especially if you sense God's call this morning, he's made you aware of your sin. He's made you aware that your ultimate trust is not in Jesus as your Savior and King, and you need to put your trust in him. If God has laid that upon your heart this morning, then don't worry about not being able to respond. Just respond. Because the invitation is alive for you right now. So forget about the theory of it and just respond. And then for those who know Jesus already, just a couple of ideas. Some of you have a very particular reason for not hearing the voice of God, and that is he is waiting for you to obey the last thing that he said to you. If you look at this passage, and we don't have time to go into all the, 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 the scary stuff in the middle, but we can talk about where Jesus says, to him who has more, who has, more will be given. And to him who does not have, even that which he has will be taken away. But what I see here is a kind of a spiral that goes in both directions, where obeying God leads to more revelation about God, more truth. More truth leads to more encounters with God. More encounters with God leads to more obedience. More obedience leads to more truth, and so on. But the, the spiral goes the other way, too, where failing to obey results in a dulling of your spiritual senses and a loss of closeness with God and un increasing unlikeliness that you will hear from Him again soon. So some of you need to ask yourself the question this morning, when was the last time that I knew that God was speaking into my life and what did I do about it? Did you make a commitment to him in, in response to, to some kingdom advancing word in your life and maybe forget about it or not follow through? Did God tell you to reconcile with somebody and you never did? Is there a step of obedience. Maybe you were in the Word of God and there's a journal entry hanging out there somewhere that you wrote down where you read something in the Bible that called you to a response and it never happened. Maybe you were at camp or at life or at a service or at some special event or even just talking to a friend and God just laid something on your heart and you said, I'm going to do that and then it, it, it stopped there. Get with God and ask Him to help you recall when you squelched His voice and go back to that place. And then for almost all of us, my sense is that, that, that almost all of us here are usually fighting the battle of the thorns. Am I right? We live in a thorny place. 
We may not face a lot of opposition or persecution or rejection, maybe a little bit, but, but more often, you know what? It's just the cares of this life, right? It's the cares of this life. It's the things that we're responsible for. It's all the things we have to get done. It's all the places that we have to be and the people we have to meet and the things that are vying for our attention. And then it's the maintenance and accumulation of all of the material wealth that we have that we are afraid of losing or maybe we're just afraid of not getting enough of it. And, and that tends to crowd out the call of God's Word and this invitation to hear the voice of Jesus and listen to his direction and follow his lead because there's just so much other stuff. So let me close this morning with a couple really practical suggestions for you and for me, everyone here fighting the thorns, okay? The first one is going to come as no surprise, and unfortunately there's no shortcut for it, but we all need to learn how to spend some relaxed and unhurried time with God in prayer, meditation, and just reading and thinking about his word. It's as hard and as simple as that. There are times when my heart is like a bucket full of hard dirt, you know, and the water can be poured on there, but it's going to take a while for God's Word to kind of to soak in there and soften things up. It needs to be, you know, swished around a little bit. And believe me, there is no battle in my life that I fight more than the battle between I need to spend some more time listening to God and I really need to get started with my day. Ever fight that battle? Folks, that tug of war is never going to end. But you know what? You know what? Maybe there's a way to, to sort of make use of it a little bit. Let me give you a suggestion. In his classic book, um, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster talks a lot about a time of meditating, which you can think of it as different things. I would just say resting and thinking in God's presence and, and what he does is he says, start by putting your hands out in front of you with your, your palms down. And when you do this, he says, you're symbolizing the act of turning things over to God. And as I read that paragraph, I thought, you know what? Maybe there's something better for us. Maybe the better thing is to sit before God at the beginning of your day like this, but with a closed fist. Start that way. And then just slowly open up that fist in the presence of God. This is not some weird meditation thing. This is you just symbolizing what you're doing, okay? And say to God, right now, I'm letting go. I am letting go of that difficult meeting at work that I can't stop thinking of. I am letting go of how I have to call the insurance company because that procedure didn't get covered. I am letting go of the difficult conversation I had with my sister that keeps upsetting me. I am letting go of my financial worries because I know that you're bigger than they are anyway. And this is work to let go. But as Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows that these things are important, or some of them are anyway. But they cannot be allowed to grow into the thorns that block the path from God's word to your heart, which means you consciously need to put them aside. And eventually, you may need to actually cut some of those thorns out of your life altogether. But first of all, you're going to need to exercise the faith to take that time that could be used for so many other really useful things and give that time to God. I don't know any other way to say that. Now, will distractions happen? <laughs> what do you think? Absolutely. Distractions, I am one of the more distractible people. Uh, distractions happen to me all the time. I get the squirrel syndrome as bad as any of you guys, right? You know what that is. When the dog hears the word squirrel and immediately forgets everything else and just looks into whatever just happened. That happens to me. But I read recently also, and I love this, that a thousand distractions during your time with God means a thousand opportunities to return to him. So don't sweat it. He's your dad. 
Just press through and don't give up because your heavenly Father wants to meet with you. He wants, he wants to meet with you. He's not going anywhere. You're the one who's going to walk out of the room first no matter when that happens. All right, let me just close with something kind of goofy here. Two years ago at this time, uh, Daniel and I, my son Daniel and I were in France. And uh, it's all before COVID, so we could go pretty much anywhere. And we uh, went to Paris. And one day, like most tourists in Paris, we went to the Louvre Museum, which of course is maybe the most fam- familiar and famous museum in the world, and it has the most famous painting in the world, which is the Mona Lisa. And, and uh, before we left for Europe, I had purchased the Rick Steves Guide to Paris. And if you know who Rick Steves is, he's a, a guy who has like a show on PBS where he goes all around Europe and tells you all the secret ways to do cool things in European cities. And it's very useful. He's got a lot of good uh, insight. And so um, there was a special section in his book on visiting the Louvre, and there was a little audio guide that I had downloaded from the internet onto my phone. And so as, we, as Daniel and I are following the, cl- the crowds through the museum, I had this guidebook in one hand, uh, and I had my one earbud in one ear, and I was listening to the voice of Rick Steves telling us where to go next. And Daniel thought I looked kind of dorky, but, and I, I probably did. But we were getting along pretty good. And as we got closer and closer to the part of the, of the museum where the Mona Lisa was, the crowds got more and more intense. And we came to this one stairway, and we were about to go straight up the stairway with everybody else. And, but I heard the voice of Rick Steves in my ear saying, at this point, everyone's going to go straight up the stairs, but you're going to take a left. And so I stopped right in the middle of the, of the crowd. And Daniel said, Dad, what are you doing? And I said, we need to take a left. And he looked and he said, are you sure? Nobody else is going left. And I said, Rick Steves says to go left. <laughs> and so uh, Daniel rolled his eyes at me and we took a left. And you know what? Eventually we did get to the Mona Lisa, which actually was kind of lame because it's not a very big painting. And, and you can't get that close to see it that well unless you stay in the room for a long time because there's always 100 people in front of you with their cell phones in the air taking a picture of the thing. And, uh, and so it, it's not that great. <laughs> I have to tell Leonardo da Vinci that someday, right? <laughs> but you know what? Because we took to that, that detour and because we went left at that intersection, we got to see up close and personal and in much, much smaller crowds the Venus de Milo, which is a really cool statue with no arms, and uh, the, the Winged Victory, which is another really cool statue with no head. Um, but we got to see so many other cool works of art that we, never, we would have missed them if we had not listened to that voice in my ear. And in the meantime, in their mad rush to reach their destination, I fear that most of the crowd never got to experience those things. You know what? In this world which is full of thorns that crowd out his voice, I know that Jesus is inviting us to much more than just a mad rush toward our destination. There are things that you will miss. There are life-expanding, Christ-forming in you experiences that will slip by if if you just go the way that every other person is going or even if you just go the way that you think you see every other Christian going. But in order to go the other way, you know, the road less traveled, to live that life, to know Jesus in that deeper way and to become that much more like him, you're going to need to exercise some faith in your tour guide to hear his kingdom word to you and to obey it. Because Jesus never stops saying, follow me. Let's pray.